Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Extra Milestone, your weekly film anniversary podcast where we take a trip to the past to discover the classic films that have made the cinematic landscape what it is today. I'm your host, Sam Noland. I uh, host this show every week and others on the Cinemaholics Patreon account. And I'm just sort of around the internet. Who isn't these days? And with me, I have someone else who's also around the internet. It is none other than my Patreon co-host, longtime uh, podcast friend, and all-around swell guy, Adonis Gonzalez. Welcome back, Adonis. Oh, well, thank you, Sam. Nice to see everyone, or I guess nice for everyone to hear me. Never really know what to say at the beginning of these, you know? Nice to envision everyone hearing this. What's up, New York? How's it going? <laughs> I'm imagining some uh, some approval sounds there. <laughs> hey, they said New York. What if we just run down like every city? We had a different intro show. for everyone. Hey, Pennsylvania. How's it going, Arizona? Hey, uh, District of Columbia. And that's our show. <laughs> like someone had a some uh, some comedian had a joke about that about how awkward it is to like go out on stage and say the wrong city. Like, hello, Detroit. I mean, and that was it. (laughs) Luckily, because this is a podcast, we don't have to worry about that. I've always wondered how awkward it must be to to watch a Netflix special and you'll have like the different, you'll have the intro where like they're in different cities and you'll have Mm -hmm. the joke. uh, Let's say they recorded the, uh, we'll use Detroit again. They use the Detroit uh, recording and you're watching it on Netflix, but you're from like, California, right? You're from Los right. Angeles. Uh, and you watch it and he goes, man, I love Detroit. This is the best city ever. And you're like, hey. What, what the hell? He said that when I was there. Yeah. This, that two-timing. This guy's a phony. <laughs> Angrily <Right>. emails Netflix. <laughs> it, you, did you know that I'm in a Netflix comedy special? Are you? Yeah, not I'm not featured, but I am in the crowd on Brian Regan, uh, especially did in 2017. Uh, that my dad and I went to that. That was a theater in Denver. So if you look way up in the left corner, you could see the two of us there. Okay, well then I have to watch Brian Regan's special in 2017. You said that's the one. All right, I'll look out yeah. for you. Well, with with that all out of the way, and I'm glad it is out of the way because that stuff we we it needed to be addressed, <laughs> and I'm glad that we did it here. Adonis, we're we have a trio of movies to discuss that were chosen a little bit at random, but as it turns out, they have they have kind of a fascinating uh, through line, and I will get to each one individually, but. I'm curious if you noticed this, that all three of these movies in some way or another are about outsiders entering a new locale and having an impact on the people there. Oh, actually, no, I didn't. (laughs) It occurred to me in the middle of like watching the second one that wait a goddamn second. There's these three are connected by accident. And, uh, a lot of times, uh, not a lot of times, but a, a couple of times at least, I've gotten questions about uh, when there are like when there's like more than one movie on an episode of Extra Milestone. Is there any thought put into it? Into like you know 
programming them and curating them in such a way that they have to do with one another? And the honest answer is sometimes it's kind of really random sometimes. Like the one last week that I did with Will Ashton, none of those three movies had anything to do with each other. it was it was just three that we wanted to talk about and then other times uh on another episode i did with will ashton we talked about three uh like road trip kind of movies all at once and that was on purpose mm-hmm. uh so uh, it's it's a case by case basis and this time as i said we've got three sort of stranger in a strange land movies and i think we're going to start with one that i actually briefly discussed a few weeks ago uh, you might remember if you listen to the show i did an episode with john negroni we talked about uh, the movie dog day afternoon but we also talked about martin scorsese's goodfellas which came out in uh, september of 1990 and released about a month later another movie came out that would end up winning best picture and six other academy awards at the oscars in 1991 and to this day is cited as a bit of a notorious example of a best picture winner that did not deserve it in the sense that there was another movie better than that this is Mm -hmm. a, a lot of the times it's one of the first examples that comes to mind and it is of course kevin costner's western epic Dances with Wolves. Just hear that you've been decorated and they sent you here to be posted? Actually, sir, I'm here at my own request. Why? I've always wanted to see the frontier. Do you want to see the frontier? Yes, sir. Before it's gone. There ain't nothing here, Lieutenant. Everybody's run off or got killed. What about Indians? Ah! Buffalo. Which is a movie that uh, I actually saw for the first time just today, like a couple of hours ago. Uh, So I'm excited to uh, say what I thought about it. But first, Adonis, this was a movie that you had seen before. So uh, why don't you let me know what is kind of your history with it, including how many times you've seen it uh, up to the most recent viewing of it? Uh, This is actually my second time seeing it. I'd only seen it once before. Um, and honestly, it's a little boring, the history behind it. I kind of just had it on VHS. Um, now I'm going to go ahead and slow down a bit for some of our younger listeners. A VHS tape is kind of <laughs> like a box with a bunch of tape in it. But when you put right. that box in a much larger box, the tape moves and then pictures appear on the screen. The That's science right. behind it escapes me. I can't really get behind that. Um, but yeah, I had Dances with Wolves on VHS. I'm sure I still have it somewhere around here, a dusty old copy. But I didn't want to look and look for it in my garage, so I kind of just watched it again, uh, streamed it. Um, <clears throat> did it was... all 
was it all on one VHS or was it split into two parts? Because it's a long movie. It's three hours long. It, from my knowledge, was on one, but... Wow. Could have that must have been a really heavy VHS tape. <laughs> Just a, a very thick one, yeah. Um, I didn't know that Kevin Costner directed and produced the movie, too. I thought it was just starring Kevin Costner. So that oh, was really? a surprise for me. Yeah. Um, also, I got to say, upon seeing the movie for a second time, there's not a lot of dancing with wolves, is there? It's yeah, it's only for one key scene, uh, but I feel like it does influence the movie in an important way, which I mean, of course we will address. Uh, but yeah, that uh, in terms of the actual significance to the plot, not much. Talk about like I don't know what it was about 1990, but like talk about like false market, like false advertising. First, you have Dancing with Wolves. First of all, there's one wolf, and it's more of a pr- more of like a, a like a like a chase than a dance i want to say a scurry maybe a scurry yes and then there's scurrying with wolf exactly that should have been the title i'm gonna email kevin costner and then there's goodfellas which was like not about goodfellas i want to say uh yeah not not particularly how about how about not particularly goodfellas (laughs) temperamental guys yes (laughs) (laughs) starring joe pesci Oh, if if only we were alive back then. Right. The entire landscape of Hollywood would be remarkably different, and I think they'd be better off for it. I think Dang so. It. Yeah. Uh, so so that's so that's interesting though. So how long ago, just out of curiosity, was this first uh, first time you saw it? It was mm. a VHS, so it must have been a while. <laughs> it was a while ago. Yeah. Oh God, I don't know. I want to say like two thousand six, seven. Mm. Something along that. I was I know I was way too young to appreciate it. I just watched the movie and I was like, okay, that was cool. Wow. 2006. Yeah. That was about 22 years ago. I, oh, wait, we're still in 2020. Ah, <laughs> I was going to say, Sam, you've aged me tremendously. My math is a little off. We're about in the sixth quarter of 2020, sixth or seventh. I would say. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we're almost there or so they say (laughs) yeah and so so as i mentioned i had not seen uh dances with wolves before but i had certainly heard of it uh, mostly just because it won best picture instead of goodfellas and the weird thing is that this is and there are a couple of movies like this this is a movie that one best picture a lot of people say it shouldn't have a lot of people say that something else deserved it more but also, they're not necessarily saying that this one is bad. And as right. a matter of fact, I'm just going to tip my hand. I thought this movie was quite good. I actually oh, yeah. really, really liked it. Uh, and, and not that I was surprised or anything. I heard really good things. I just, I just, uh, the whole legacy of this movie is kind of based around it being less good than something else. So to discover that it's actually uh, very, uh, very exciting and very uh fascinating and sort of sort of intoxicating in a certain way Mm -hmm. came as a bit of a surprise and i I think uh, the other there are a few other examples the one i think of most is rocky which came out in 1976 one of the great sports movies maybe the great sports movie uh Mm -hmm. and yet 
came out the same year as All the President's Men and Taxi Driver, mm. both of which I would argue are slightly more deserving of the Academy Award. And there are others that I could name, but it's an interesting phenomenon when you have an award literally called Best Picture, it's bound to happen. Right. Yeah. I mean, it is a, it is a very enjoyable movie. I do like it. And it's, I mean, it's kind of influential in the sense that it kind of put Westerns back in the forefront after a long time of them kind of dwindling down. Mm. I mean, they sort of dwindled down again after that, but I think, I, I, I want to say they came back with a bit of a, uh, with a, a bit of a stronger passion because of Dancing with Wolves and movies like another movie we'll get to later on. But um, I don't know. It's, it's a, it's a really good movie, but I also acknowledge the, uh, the controversy surrounding it uh and i mean that's that's a controversy that kind of comes hand in hand with movies like this the the white savior thing right uh not so it's not to say that it's uh a bad movie but there definitely is uh there there definitely is a controversy behind it and i'm sure we'll get into that as well but yeah it's it's strange that the the history behind this movie is just that it beat out goodfellas which (laughs) in my opinion is a better movie at least right. to me, I do like if I'm going to choose between Dances with Wolves and Goodfellas, which one to watch repeatedly, it's going to be Goodfellas every time. But I don't think it's so. I don't think it's such a polarizing uh, competition. You know, I think they're very on par with each other. Yeah. I think they're, and I don't want to dwell on this too long, but it is kind of significant to the legacy of this movie. I think it's very possible for there to be multiple movies worthy of the award in a certain year. Oh yeah. Uh, one of them's got to win, I guess. Uh in 2018, none of them won cuz Green <laughs> Book won. Have I ever, have I told you my theory about about what went into that decision last year? Mm-mm. So, okay. So they just come off and this is a total tangent, but I've got to get this out. They had just come off of giving the award to Moonlight and The Shape of Water, two movies that are like 10 years ago would not have won the award and just do so do not seem like the kind of thing that the Academy would give the award to. And yet mm-hmm. everyone was surprised and satisfied, like, hey, the Academy is branching out. This is nice. And then they said, hold on, we're getting too much goodwill. Here's what <laughs> we're going to do. We're, we're going to give it to like, literally the worst or second worst movie that we nominate this time but then and everyone's going to be upset but then next year we're going to do like the most unpredictable thing ever that everyone's going to be elated about and then parasite won this year and i said aha it was their plan all along Mm. yes I think they were being really tricky with the, with the, with what they did. And this theory makes no sense. If you know anything about how the Academy works, it's actually just, it's, it's remarkably ill-conceived, but it's just my own weird fictional headcanon that I like to have. And that's, uh, that's that pretty much. Uh, it's an interesting theory. Yeah. My theory is that uh, Sonic the Hedgehog will win best picture next year, uh, purely due to the fact that not many movies release in theaters after that. Mm. I was pulling for the call of the wild, but I suppose uh, I suppose one of them's got to win. One of them uh, is. Can't and, wait to see I, Jim Carrey come onto the uh, <laughs> the Oscar stage. 
it's weird that I bring up Call of the Wild because it actually does uh, kind of bear similarities to Dances with Wolves, complete with there being a wolf in it. Ooh. Who knows? That was totally by accident. And so, yeah. And so I just want to give a little background on the movie uh, just to sort of set the stage. So uh, in, including uh, something that you brought up a moment ago. Um, as it turns out, this movie was written as a script first. Uh, that was sort of uh, it was a spec script, which means that it's sort of just being thrown into the Hollywood circle in hopes of it getting picked up at random mm-hmm. at some point down the line. Uh, and it, it just wasn't able to find a home, partly because this kind of movie had had kind of died out, uh, largely due to a movie called Heaven's Gate, directed by Michael Cimino, director of The Deer Hunter, two years later made this enormous sweeping epic in the year 1980 that was so expensive that it was one of the most catastrophic financial losses in Hollywood history when it didn't do well and it kind of killed that kind of movie mm-hmm. forever at least at least in any consistent basis like just epics were not a thing anymore after that and so it was hard for dancers with wolves to find a home and uh eventually it eventually it caught the eye of kevin costner who was uh, a very successful actor at the time who ended up convincing the writer, uh, and I'm blanking on the name, so I'll look that up in a second, but ended up convincing the writer to turn it into a book first instead, and then took the rights to the book and then made a movie out of it. So it's weird how it sort of like, you know, reversed on itself and then came full circle in the end uh, to becoming a movie. Uh, and then that is what we ended up with it. And it was, as you may imagine, a lot of studios were hesitant to sort of Uh, get a hold of it but i think it was orion pictures who eventually did it Mm -hmm. and uh and yeah it's uh it's the story just to set a little bit of the stage here if if, uh, it's been a while or you haven't seen it or anything Uh, it's a story about a union soldier in the civil war who one day decides i just i don't care anymore this is this is pointless and like rides out into the middle of no man's land and in like attempting uh suicide as we as as near as we can tell uh and when it doesn't work weirdly enough is like awarded a medal of honor and says okay well now you can do whatever you want because of your bravery and heroism and right off the bat you can tell that that uh, kevin costner's character uh john dunbar feels just completely disenfranchised by this war and by the idea of war and conflict in general. You can tell that he's taken a lot of issue with just the very concept of it, of Mm -hmm. being on a side and being allegiant to one ideology, one team, essentially, over the other. It seems completely pointless. And indeed... I, and I and you know this is a lot of this is just personal belief. I happen to agree. I think I very pacifistic at heart. So the beginning of this movie really spoke to me a lot when it comes oh, to yeah. just wanting nothing to do with any of that. And uh, and it, it it certainly is it's it certainly helps as well. Just the the current political climate trademark that we're in right now. <laughs> uh, and uh, I I could really I could really you know, feel a lot of that em- uh, empathetically. And so decides, well, I want to go, I want to see the frontier. 
before it's gone. Like I want to mm-hmm. see, I want to see nature and the plains and everything. And so it's taken to this little, little fort. And I think it's South Dakota. I want to say that's where it was filmed at least. So I imagine that's where it takes place. Uh, and is kind of just going to wait there and eventually comes to realize that he is not far from a, uh, from a native American tribe, the Sioux, uh, Indians, I believe is what they're called. And, uh, and eventually through a series of interactions and, uh, and, uh, things of that nature learns, learns, uh, the, the, all the great things that they have to offer and realizes mm-hmm. that they're not savages as everyone in his life has kind of led him to believe and that they're actually, uh, just remarkably intelligent and spiritual and, uh, have nothing but good to offer and uh and it's a really kind of beautiful story honestly uh although as adonis mentioned it does have it does have a a certain layer to it that is coming clearly from a white man's perspective is that mm-hmm. is that accurate to say oh yeah um i actually wanted to ask you about that i wanted to ask your opinion on that because it's mm. something that a lot of people debate uh, because it does suffer from the white savior complex, which you see in a lot of uh, Hollywood movies. A white male comes into a uh, a nation or a tribe or a community of people that are considered like different uh, from his lifestyle, and he comes in and he's like, yeah. "Oh, these people, we're we're not so different, you and I," you know. Uh, and it's not always a bad thing. It's just something that has been done a lot and yeah. kind of only only displays one side of the story but to be fair to this movie and to kevin costner um i mean a lot of work was put in to uh to sort of honor the the real life uh traditions of the sioux nation uh to the point where he had like uh, like linguistics trainers on set uh but it's, it's a little funny because he he didn't really account for the the gendered speech of the of the Lakota. So like uh, you'll have uh, Lakota male warriors speaking with like a feminine tone. Uh, but I mean, he did try and put a lot into it to the point where like even the actual Sioux nation adopted Kevin Costner, like as a yeah. member of the nation. So, I mean, I just, I wanted to ask your opinion, like, what do you think? Uh, do you think they did a good job of that? Uh, yeah, I guess that's my question. Do you think they, they did a good job sort of honoring the actual, real life native american nations that they portray in this movie uh well for, for before i answer i just want to address it is not my place to say you know but uh that is, if, that's if, true that's true if if you're asking me the question uh as near as i could tell there was a lot of thought as you said put into making sure that this was you know that this was on the up and up and everything to the point mm-hmm. where the entire supporting cast is made up of actual native americans there's no uh red face which is a horrible phrase for lack of a better one mm-hmm. um and uh and it's i think there's an interesting layer to this movie uh when it comes to the word savior because i think it kind of does it and it kind of doesn't where the idea is that uh is that the white man shows up to most troubling of all what is often perceived as like a less evolved people 
mm-hmm. in this movie, I never get that sense that like, you know, this guy, this one white guy is smarter than the rest of them and is therefore able to, quote, be the bigger person. I think it's very uh, uh, forthright in saying that uh, he's not that you know they're actually they're on at least an equal playing field and right. and perhaps uh perhaps he's even lesser than them because of the way he's been brought up to think that the enemy is just that they're an opposing force and something to be dealt with something uh, to be wiped out uh mm-hmm. and just treated with disdain at every turn and that is something that I and I think this movie would agree with a couple of exceptions, which are a little frustrating in the way that it sort of uh, allows conflict to take place without any reflection. But I think for the most part, this movie does have a very clear attitude of this kind of conflict that we've seen time mm-hmm. and time again, every war we've ever had about how we're right, they're wrong, the divide is permanent and like never the twain shall meet that can and will be our downfall as a species. Mm-hmm. Maybe not like in the short term, but in the long term, we're doomed if we never grow out of that. And right. here we are like 150 years later, we see that all over the place. And so this is a movie that I think is really uh, universally true for whenever uh, you happen to be watching it, regardless of you know time period or historical context or, any, or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think... All those sort of to 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 use a critic word in air quotes. <laughs> all those problematic things aside, I think this is a very uh, intelligent movie about conflict and that's in that kind of issue. So hopefully, I, I know I went on for a long time. I hope that answered uh, your question. <laughs> it did. It did. Um, yeah, I agree. I a movie I can kind of relate it to. I guess a, a modern movie is in a way, The Revenant, the one with Leonardo DiCaprio. Mm. Uh, Not so much in terms of the plot, but there is uh, a sort of similarity uh, where you have this this almost fish-out-of-water storyline where he's sort of of taken into a different world and he realizes that the world he was living in before um, wasn't wasn't all, you know, sunshine and rainbows. It wasn't exactly as good as he thought it was. The only difference, I guess, is that, uh, as you mentioned earlier, Dunbar, at the very beginning of this movie, is already disenfranchised with the world he's living in and the war that he's sort of being forced to participate in. Uh, So there's already that that idea that he can... He can see it from from the other side because he sees that his side isn't exactly correct. Hmm. That's I I must need to watch that movie again because honestly I I remember very little of what you just described uh, or at <laughs> least I I at least remember that not being the sequel because I I remember it being mostly a revenge uh, story more than anything uh, yeah that was I, definitely at the forefront right so I am curious though because I don't I don't deny what you're saying at all so I'll just I'll have to I've been meaning to get back to that one I haven't seen it since it came out and. By sheer coincidence, as we're recording this, it is Leonardo DiCaprio's birthday. So, what oh, happy birthday, little, Leonardo DiCaprio! Yes, yes, happy. I just started doing a Di- uh, DiCaprio impression too. You heard it the other night, so maybe <laughs> maybe I'll break it out on a podcast sometime soon. But, right, right. Uh, yeah. So, 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 getting back to Dances with Wolves, I think uh, I, I think you're absolutely right that. Um, just the way, and I think, and I want to, I want to talk about the length, but. What I one thing I like most is that 
a lot of times when you have a historical movie, a period piece about this kind of thing, about, you know, approaching the other, another phrase that is uh, just deeply troubling, but uh, mm-hmm. approaching a kind of person that's different from yourself, a lot of times we assume that they're going to have what we view as kind of like a, a prehistoric mindset you know where uh, they're just in- intensely bigoted and everything like that uh we don't necessarily have that in this movie but we also don't have the opposite where there's a character who clearly is approaching it with a more modern outlook like a very accepting outlook like this this character john dunbar is not intensely accepting off the bat that's the first thing that the the, the first time that he encounters uh, kicking bird the graham green character in this movie who's part of the sioux tribe uh is just sort of checking out the fort and John Dunbar assumes that he's being robbed and chases after him completely naked, which is a hilarious image. <laughs> and uh, and it, it does take time for them to sort of approach each other and attempt to communicate and everything. So it's, it's definitely a transformation. And I like that this movie is willing to take the time. We mentioned earlier that was, that it was three hours long. I actually, because uh, my, uh, my stepdad happened to have a DVD of dances with wolves and it was the extended director's cut, which is right on the verge of four hours long. (laughs) Yeah. I've yet to see that one, but that's, that's an animal I want to tackle one day. I'm actually, I'm not aware of any of the differences as near as I can tell. It's just like little, you know, scenes here and there and everything. So uh, Mm. there aren't entire sequences that were totally lifted out for the theatrical version, but I got to say like four hours is a long time, but I really didn't feel it. It felt like it felt like a really good two hour movie. And could it have been shorter? Probably. I think there's a lot of things that could maybe have been condensed uh, Mm -hmm. just for the sake of keeping the pacing going. Uh, There were I, I would be lying if I said I was completely engaged for like all 240 minutes of it. Um, It's very palatable, though. I think I think you're right. And I think there's something about a movie that is this big, both morally and uh, and, you know, just in terms of scope that we just don't see a lot anymore. And like there's a reason that this kind of movie was, had just died out by mm-hmm. this time is because people just weren't interested. They have been kind of inundated with them and uh, and they can be exhausting and if they're bad it's insufferable oh my goodness like, <laughs> around the world in 80 days another best picture winner that thing is a slog to get through like it's not one of the worst movies ever made but it's certainly one of the worst best <clears throat> picture movies ever made if we're going with that conversation and it is just a chore to get through i hope i never have to watch that thing again um, i uh very uh confession to make i've only seen the version with jackie chan and you know what? No <laughs> shame necessary. I thought that I th- one was quite good. I I haven't seen that one. I've seen the one that's not fun. <laughs> well, of course, they Jackie might, Chan wasn't in it. They might both not be. Well, there you go. <laughs> they might both not be fun. I don't know. All I know is that it was long and unrewarding and kind of exciting but just nothing of any particular substance to the point where i can remember very little about it to this day uh, mm. that will not be an extra milestone i think is fair to say so that <laughs> 1956 don't look forward to that next year because it's not happening 
But there's something about a movie that is willing to be this huge that is kind of an echo of an older uh, form of filmmaking that is very, uh, very romantic and very, uh, very, very exciting. And yes, I just turned into Jeff Goldblum and I do it all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ah, yes. uh, uh, and there is just going on a journey. I think that's the thing I love the most about this is that, and, and other movies of this kind is that, a lot of the times we think of a movie like this where it's a huge sweeping journey as having to be exciting for the whole time. I don't think that's necessarily true. I think it's perfectly fine for there to be really tedious parts, really repetitive parts, maybe that feel unnecessary in the moment and and indeed maybe they are. But also and 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 don't sigh when you hear me say this Donis, but I think I <laughs> I think that's part of life. You think about just an, a day. I, I'm just breathing. There you go. Okay. <laughs> you think about just a day in your life. Most of it is not exciting. I, mm-hmm. I don't care who you are. At least part of your day, if not the majority of it, is completely tedious and would not interest anyone else in the slightest. But to you... It's the most important thing going on. It's everyone has their own life and there are going to be tedious parts and there are going to be exciting parts filled with uh, change and growth and everything. And with a movie this big, I like that we get to see it all to the point where we feel like we've been through something at the end of it and there's more to remember and there's more to sink our teeth into. And I was so glad to finally get the chance to see it. Issues aside, of which there, of which there are a lot, uh, some of which I haven't mentioned yet. Sam, um, I hmm? oh sorry. Uh, I just want to say I completely agree. Um, I do love movies where they can kind of just slow down a bit, right? Because especially nowadays, there's a lot of action films, uh, a lot of uh, exciting blockbusters where the idea is that the action just has to keep going, like scene after scene after scene. There has to be something going on. Um, yeah. And it is, it's nice sometimes to just sort of slow down and, rem- and remember that these are, these characters are people, right? Like they're people we're observing and they're not always going to be doing the most like every moment. And I, I, it reminds me of, and this isn't a movie. It's just, it's, it's a game, but it's one that. Well, then we don't talk about it here. All right. I'll just throw that opinion away. I'm kidding. What is it? <laughs> well, I don't know if you've ever played Red Dead Redemption 2. Uh, and I won't spend too much time on this because this game is incredibly incredibly long it's like at least five or six dances with wolves Um, (laughs) but it's a western game and uh it's by the creators of grand theft auto so it's uh it's a little cinematic you know they make uh very realistic games and there are just moments where you're not doing the whole gunslinging action movie hero thing that the game advertises there's moments where you're just fishing or you're just sitting down at the camp listening uh, I remember I got the game and there's an option where you can just sit at the campfire, grab a beer, and then just listen to another character tell a story. And you can just sit there for hours if you wanted to, if you so choose to. And I appreciated that because it it's the same thing with movies like this. Like there are moments where you can just slow down the action a bit and it it, it helps you to appreciate those exciting scenes just a little bit more because you've gotten invested in the characters and in the story so when it gets to the when the stakes are high you're you're not just there for the action you're there for everything for every emotion you know so i definitely agree with that sentiment yeah 
that uh, that game that you just described I've, i haven't played it uh it sounds like it would drive me crazy because of my <laughs> add and everything if oh, i didn't Sam. know beforehand now that i know maybe i could get into it i actually don't know i'm not a huge gamer myself the amount of side quests i can't, i've still not completed them there's just too many i've given up <laughs> Ah, so it's one of those games. <laughs> I like yeah. games with a percentage that I can see and can get <laughs> to a hundred. Right? Yeah, that's my kind of thing. This game is like mm, maybe you're at seventy percent, but mm. did you help Mrs. O'Donnell take out the trash? <laughs> Mrs. O'Donnell is what I would say. Ah, no. There you go. <laughs> but enough games. Uh, yeah. Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah. I just I, a few other things I wanted to talk about. Uh, again, just speaking to the scale of this movie, um, they filmed it uh, mostly in South Dakota, where the story presumably takes place. They also filmed part of it in Wyoming. By sheer coincidence, I, a few weeks ago, I actually went on a road trip through this area of the country and. Hmm. It was, and so it was unlike anything you've ever seen. Like I drove through all of Wyoming and like a third of the state of Montana, and I got to see like the the whole landscape of it just as the sun was rising. And I'm a sucker for that kind of thing, and it's my mm-hmm. my lifelong dream to just drop everything and go to a place like that. Uh, I, I I won't for a while, so don't worry, but. That that was just another thing that spoke to my my inner wanderer about this once, movie, and so yeah. Once you've defeated the Avengers, you can go ahead and and retire on a nice little farm area. You're insinuating that I'm Thanos, Adonis. That I'm Samos. I mean, with a name like that, how could I not insinuate? Yes, of course. I'm, I'm not going to do the whole you know Infinity glove thing and kill everyone but just too much time too much time i'll figure something out uh regardless of that um yeah so i i really loved it i think there are lots of issues to be taken with it uh i i didn't really mention this because i didn't want to dwell on it but when it comes to kevin costner himself i think he's fine in the movie he's not the most captivating screen presence like a hundred percent of the time yeah which is which is frustrating, especially when you want to really connect to this character. So that's a tick against it. Costner's always, at least to me, he's always kind of had this sort of um, sleepiness. Yes, yeah. Okay, I couldn't <laughs> think of the word, but it's just almost as if like he's just been he's just been. This is like take eighty seven, and he's like, yeah. All right, guys, we got to. And get he's this right. the director too. <laughs> no. You think he choose a, a bit of a better shot of himself, but I don't know. I guess he was fine with it, so. I guess so. Yeah, it's, it's it, it makes it a little hard to tell that there's been a transformation when he acts kind of the same at the beginning and the end of the movie. So that's certainly a flaw. I think maybe a different actor would have been a little better at uh, at communicating that transformation. But who's to say? We, we'll, we'll never know. Um, yeah. All that aside... I was a I was a fan. I was glad to finally get to see it and I I'm not I'm not mad that the academy gave it best picture. I'm just slightly disappointed, but also <laughs> in a way that I think I can get over pretty quickly. So I think, you know, I I can keep good fellas. I'm like, no, this, this is good. This is good. It doesn't need an award. 
to yeah. validate how good it is. I was gonna say it's weird because I'm I'm sure if you asked uh, a room, the majority of them would say that they've seen Goodfellas and not Dances with Wolves, right? Or at the very least, they've seen Goodfellas more than Dances with Wolves, right? Yeah. So I think that counts as a win in the end, but not to not to focus too much on a different movie. Uh, right. Dances with Wolves, pretty good. <laughs> yeah, pretty damn good. Uh, Adonis, let's talk about another western. Uh, and this one is a is a little bit more of a traditional one, mm-hmm. and which is funny because it's based on actually a samurai movie, and it's one that's brought up a lot as a as an example of a good remake. It is John Sturges's Sturges's. Oh my goodness, that is a hard <laughs> thing to say. Let John Sturges. It is John Sturges's remake <laughs> of. Akira Kurosawa's 1954 samurai epic, Seven Samurai. It is The Magnificent Seven. Brenner, McQueen, Coburn, Vaughn, Brunson, Bacoltz, Dexter, The Magnificent Seven. We wish you to help us. There's this man, Calvera. A thief. A murderer. He and his men, they steal our food. Then they leave us to starve. And he will do so until he is stopped. Even five won't give us too much trouble. There won't be any trouble. Ride on. Ride on? I'm going into the hills for the winter. Where am I going to get the food for my men? Buy it or grow it. Or maybe even work for it. Solving your problems isn't that a lot. Yule Brenner. Anything wrong? Turn that trigger around and get it down the hill. Steve McQueen. Window. Curtain moved. I'm in a good position. Let him stick his neck out. James Cobert. Falling. Robert Vaughn. Charles Bronson. Horst Buckholtz. Dexter. Seven magnificent men in one magnificent motion picture. The Magnificent Seven. One of my favorite movies of all time, and one of my favorite uh, remakes to the point where it actually kind of rivals Seven Samurai to me. Really? I I love Magnificent Seven. Uh, the original, of course. Uh, you know, not yes, the, we're not we're not talking about the other one. So, so how guy. far how far back does this uh, does this history with the movie go? And does it precede your familiarity with Seven Samurai? Um, no, actually, I I saw Seven Samurai first. Um, I actually saw both fairly recently. I want to say twenty. Oh, when when did the new one come out? Twenty sixteen. Twenty sixteen. Okay, uh, because I had seen the trailer 
for the new Magnificent Seven. Uh, and everyone was like, oh, that's a remake of the old one. It's going to be terrible because that at the time, Hollywood was just taking out remakes that weren't exactly up to par with the originals. Um, so I was like, okay, before I go out and see this movie, I want to see the original. Uh, I looked it up only to find out that the original is a remake itself. So I was like, okay, before I see the remake of the remake, I'm going to see the original. So then I watched Seven Samurai and then I watched Magnificent Seven 1960 and then I went and saw the new one and we're not going to talk about that one. But um, yeah, so that's kind of how it how it happened. I just, I'm a bit of a completionist. Uh, my, my, oh my God, I almost said my ACDC, my OCD. <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to movies like that, my OCD kind of kicks in. I'm like, okay, well, I have to see what, what started it first. Unless I don't know. Like I never knew the Italian job was a remake. The one with Jason Statham. Uh, and then I went and saw the Michael Caine version. Michael Caine. Right. But yeah, so that's my history behind it. Um, and yeah, I, I love this movie. It's one of my favorite Westerns. Uh, it's just full of so much, like, like what you, what you think of in a Western, like those, those showdowns, those, those, um, I don't think suave is the word, but those charming characters, those charming, you know, Charles Bronson. Swaggering cowboys. Yes, thank you. You know, the Charles Bronsons of the, uh, of the world. The, the Steve McQueens. The James Coburns, the Yul Brynners, and the other three guys. (laughs) The, the horse bushels. Horse, horse buckles, I believe is what it's called. That was a meme for the longest time, which is no one can name all seven cast members of the Magnificent Seven. They'll get to maybe six. Most people tap out at four. And (laughs) I think the reason for that is because two of them look and act really similar. Brad Dexter (laughs) and Robert Vaughn. Oh my God, right? Unless I I kept trying to remember, okay, this one looks like that. This one looks like that. I kept getting confused. Uh, And that is not untrue of Seven Samurai. There are a couple of characters that don't stand out a ton. Um, And by the way, I should specify Seven Samurai is like my second favorite movie of all time. So this is, it's a lot of, a lot of competition with uh, the Magnificent Seven, which I I saw once, I also saw it back when the remake came out and I watched it again today and I'm sad to say I'm not, I do like the movie. I'm not as big of a fan as it sounds like as you are, Adonis. I think there's a, a lot with the pacing and a lot with sort of the uh, attempt at adapting the story while also condensing it. That was very apparent to me, uh, mm-hmm. which I thought was frustrating, but it is also a very fun time. And the cast is, uh, is really good. I, I love seeing uh, Yul Brynner and everything. Matter of fact, I found out a lot of fun stuff about the production of this movie and sort of the way it came to be. It was actually Brynner's idea uh, in the first really? place to remake seven samurai and he came to some studio head and said, Hey, I've got the script. Let's do this. And funnily enough, they were working on it. They were, you know, in development and everything. And actor Anthony Quinn shows up and says, hold on there, fellas, you'll Brenner and I were working on this and we had a falling out. I want some credit for this. And he never got it because there was never any evidence that this was true. Hmm. Like, I have no idea what the actual story is, if Anthony Quinn had anything to do with this whatsoever. But it seems like the kind of thing Yul Brynner would do is like start working on something and then abandon his writing partner and then keep right. going without him and stuff. Well, I uh, 
It does, because I, I heard that uh, – I looked up a little bit of uh, interesting tidbits as well. Uh, and apparently, Yul Brynner and Steve McQueen had a bit of a, a altercation on set while filming the movie. Yeah. Uh, to the point where I think uh, – I want hold on. I want to make sure I'm right about this. Yeah. Um, so McQueen, uh, in his later years, uh, before he had passed, actually called Brynner and thanked him for being on the movie and sort of reconciled. Uh, but before that, the movie uh, kind of like caused a bit of a like a, a feud between them, which was weird because Brenner was the reason McQueen got cast in the first place. Like he he uh, vouched for him and like said, you know, you should cast Steve McQueen as Ben Tanner. Yeah. Matter of fact, that wasn't like it wasn't going to work out because Steve McQueen had other obligations. It wasn't until his agent said, hey, I've got an idea. Why don't you get into a car accident so you won't have to keep working on this tv show and use your you know your leave your time away to make the magnificent seven and that's exactly what happened well you know what (laughs) i can't say there haven't been days at work where i thought the same thing (laughs) (laughs) you want to stage a car accident just so you'll have to you, you won't have to go back just so i can go work on the next magnificent seven yes there you go. It's funny you say that. Did you know there are three sequels to this movie? I did. I've seen none of them. And Spoiler I don't really alert. plan to see them. They don't all make it to the end. And all the sequels are called The Magnificent Seven. Like, who's <laughs> who approved this? It would have been such an easy, you know, numbering scheme to call the sequels. You know, the second one's The Magnificent Three and so on. Eventually, you got to get to The Magnificent Zero at some point or another. Right. That's your end game. Stop calling it Seven. It's just confusing. Um, and yeah, you are right about how uh, Yul Brynner and Steve McQueen did not get along all the time. Uh, mm-hmm. They were both... What, what happened was Steve McQueen's character didn't have a ton of dialogue. Uh, it was even less than in the finished product where he still doesn't get a lot, especially compared to Yul Brynner. Yeah. Uh, and uh, was trying to take attention away from Yul Brynner and vice versa to the point where like where Yul Brynner was making piles of dirt to stand on so he would look taller than Steve McQueen. <laughs> oh my god. And then Steve McQueen would like kick them away in, in between takes. So lots well, of uh let, lots of playful hopefully not too serious animosity going on. You can't you you can't rival the king of cool, Sam. I'm sorry. Right. As much as I love you, Renner, I mean he's Steve McQueen. Yeah, the queen of cool even. The yeah, the Mick Queen of Cool. That's right. That's better. As if he were a McDonald's uh, <laughs> promotion. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if they ever. This is completely. That's super. I won't spend so much time on this tangent, but I wonder if there was ever like a McQueen McDonald's promotion, where like they you could get like a big Mac Queen or something. Oh gosh, I don't or know. Chicken maybe, McQueen nuggets. If they crossed over with Burger King at some point, maybe that would have been more fitting. I'm Steve McQueen, and I may be the king of cool, but I'm not the Burger King. Yeah. That yeah, title yeah. belongs to this guy as he's holding a whopper and the the king is like dancing behind him. I don't know. Uh-huh. Back when Burger King had a mascot. <laughs> Boy, those were the days. I remember. But yeah, so so uh, so getting into the movie itself, it is 
like Seven Samurai, it's the story of a village who is being sort of raided by bandits. Uh, in this case, the lead bandit is played by Eli Wallach. That's one of the key differences with this and Seven Samurai is that we actually have sort of one singular antagonist that mm-hmm. uh, the efforts can be sort of focused on. And who better than Eli Wallach to play that character? Right. Um, and uh, and the the villagers go into town and they end up getting a hold of seven warriors in this case uh, gunslingers as opposed to uh, samurai to defend the town and they don't have a lot to offer so most of them are doing this out of either honor or defiance or sort of the eagerness to prove themselves in the case of uh, at least one or two characters uh, or maybe just boredom, which I'm, I'm convinced is at least a few of them's inspiration to do this. And mm-hmm. most of the movie is the acquiring of the seven warriors and also the uh, training of the villagers to defend themselves. And the and it climaxes with the actual attack on the village, and it's really exciting. Some live, some die, and it's a huge... A shootout and everything and it's it's really exciting so i can't deny it that and the thing i noticed first when re-watching this movie uh when it comes to the way that this movie sets itself apart because it's based on seven samurai it was it's porting over these sort of eastern ideas of uh sort of being moral and having honor and dignity as a warrior in a time of great turmoil. And that's not something you would see in a lot of other Westerns of this era, where someone with the, uh, with the characters, at least with the gunslinger characters, where they were just sort of doing this thing because it's the right thing to do. And so that makes for a really interesting series of characters. Uh, And I find that I'm not entirely buying it for that reason because it feels aesthetically at least it feels too similar to less ironic westerns does that make sense what i'm saying i think so i think i see what you're saying yeah and so it doesn't it doesn't make it you know not enjoyable to watch or anything but it's also very clear to me that they are doing a story that is uncharacteristic of the genre and they're not necessarily taking as many steps as maybe they should hmm. to to differentiate themselves from that. I think there, there, this was a time when we actually just, uh, or I, I suppose by the time we listen to this, in a few episodes or in a few days from now, uh, Adonis and I talk about a Twilight Zone episode called Mr. Denton on Doomsday, <laughs> which is about which is a period piece about like a gunslinger who get, who get, is uh, who is uh, intervened by fate uh, at a at sort of a crucial point in his life and I won't go into detail on it but there's a very melancholy tone to that episode where you can tell it's not trying to be romantic about you know the western hero about the gunslinger this with this I'm not entirely sure it's hard for me to really get a handle on because there are lots of times in this movie where they're really heroic and they're really cool i think james coburn especially is kind of the standout badass of all of them mm-hmm. and yet there are also speeches most uh, most notably given by charles bronson who says things like this life is 
miserable and lonely and cowardly uh and you know what the average everyday person is doing is so many times braver than what we're doing because there's no responsibility associated with this so it's also got a little you know element is sort of the revisionist western which uh, john ford had just uh, gotten started a few years earlier with the searchers uh, and and there are others that preceded but that was kind of the big one mm-hmm. and so it's kind of this clash of narrative approaches that i think makes it hard for me to really get on board with this as one of the great westerns do you think does does that all make sense and have you thought about this before it does it does make sense uh i have i have thought about this um i guess my my history with the magnificent seven kind of creates a bit of a personal bias uh in the sense that this was around the time where i hadn't really seen a ton of westerns most of what i had seen were westerns that came after the magnificent seven and Mm. A lot of Westerns that came after it uh, tended to sort of follow a similar structure, uh, especially the the gathering of the gunslinger heroes or uh, yeah. heroes like that. And then like the final confrontation, uh, things like the Hateful Eight come to mind. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, I guess it does. It, it is uh, because of that that I like it a little bit more, but also just because uh, the reason that I sort of put it on the same or a similar pedestal to seven samurais because both of them give me sort of a different experience as a moviegoer with a similar story. You know, Mm. the seven samurai is obviously the better film because it does handle uh, these elements with a little bit more maturity, uh, a little bit more, uh, a little bit more focus on like human vignette and like the, the, the characters, themselves and like the story around them and the magnificent seven is sort of like i guess the closest to being like a modern just entertaining action movie that's not to say like it's it's brainless in any way like it's one of those turn off your brain kind of movies but it is very it is very much about like heroism and like the romanticism and the dramatization of the life of being a cowboy or being a gunslinger uh, and that to me is just very interesting. So I think that's probably why I hold it so high is because a lot of the Westerns I saw after it sort of took a, took a couple of notes from that playbook. And so it definitely influenced my experience with Westerns. Okay. I could see what you're saying. Yeah. It's, I, I had seen a decent handful of Westerns before this. Uh, mm-hmm. it's not, franchise that i am intimately familiar with by any means but i've seen a good deal of them and so i think maybe this feels so unique in the way that it is an adaptation of a japanese story into a western milieu and this is actually the first of three that i'm aware of western remakes of kurosawa (laughs) movies uh one of which i actually mentioned recently on an extra milestone about rashomon that movie was remade in 1964 uh, into a movie called The Outrage. I believe Martin Ritt directed that one, uh, starring Paul Newman. It's actually a damn good movie. I think it's a it's a really captures the spirit of the original. And the other one, possibly the most famous one, either this or Magnificent Seven, is uh, Fistful of Dollars, the remake of Yojimbo by oh, yeah. Sergio Leone. Um, I'm not as big a fan of uh, Fistful of Dollars. I like the second two a lot better, especially the third one. Um, 
And so all this is to say that it's a difficult tone to strike. And this was the first of them. So I think there's a way to look at this movie as kind of an experimental thing. I'm sure it's not the first American remake of a Japanese movie or even a genre remake, but I think it's certainly one of the more well-known and uh, one of the more successful. This was a really big hit just by sheer nature of the cast and how big they were and everything and the director and everything uh, and just how exciting and uh, just, you know, entrancing it was. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess it just feels like it's neither fish nor fowl at the end of the day. So I do see what you're saying. Um, I maybe a third watch will reveal to me what exactly this movie is going for and i'll be able to appreciate it as it stands Mm -hmm. again i do like it quite a bit i think it's a i think it's a fun exciting movie this we haven't even mentioned the score of this thing by elmer is one of the most raucous and exciting scores of any western uh, let alone any movie of that time period so really really fun and uh a lot of just really great actor moments i i love uh this is one of the very earliest Uh, Charles Bronson movies and I think it's funny that there's no such thing as a young Charles Bronson you know what I'm saying (laughs) the man was (laughs) the man was 50 years old at birth and but it it is like Morgan Freeman he's never ever (laughs) been a child yeah Charles Bronson as a kid hey mom (laughs) where do you think you're going punk you're under arrest (laughs) for not letting me go to bed in time Charles Bronson is Scottish, apparently. Yeah, sorry, I slipped into it and I couldn't get out. Oh, <laughs> All right, we'll go with it. Um, <laughs> I, I never pass up an opportunity to do a, a Charles Bronson impression. It's one of my one of my favorite voices. So, yeah, he he's a lot of fun in this movie as just sort of this character who's just burdened with shame at having chosen this lifestyle mm-hmm. and uh again james coburn's just the badass and uh yul brenner is is in it for the honor and steve mcqueen just to kind of prove that he can uh I, I like that every character has a note i think there's obviously not as many layered character stories as there is in seven samurai mostly by way of the length i think that seven samurai that's another movie like uh, dances with wolves which really just breathes and hums and really allows time for everything to grow. And it's part of the reason why it's one of my all time favorites. So maybe, maybe that's part of it. Just the, uh, the way that it'll never amount to what came before it, to what it's based on. So I, mm-hmm. I couldn't quite say with a bullet. So it's, again, it's heavy. It's heavy shoes to fill for sure. Cause I mean, Kurosawa seven samurai is, is damn near perfect. Like it's, it's it's an incredible movie. So it's it's very hard to compare the two. I think that's fair. So yeah, so we we both like it. Adonis uh, clearly likes it a lot more than I do. Uh and I think and I think you're in the majority. I think a lot of people really love this thing. Uh the reception was actually rather mixed at first, which is interesting. Um although Akira Kurosawa did approve enthusiastically and he actually gave a sword to Don uh, John right. Sturges. Which Can you awesome. imagine? Oh, that's that's an incredible gift. That would be my prized possession if that were ever the case. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> Akira Kurosawa and I were never alive at the same time, so that's a damn shame. Actually, uh, he died the year I was born. You're right. So, sorry, world. I, 
Damn. I didn't mean it. Just missed it. <laughs> but oh well. Adonis, what do you say we move on to our final film of the evening? I say I'm okay, actually. Oh, yeah? You want to just skip it entirely? <laughs> uh, let's just stop while we're ahead, right? How no. dare you? No, I'm let's gonna, go. Let's go. I'm going to ignore Adonis's uh, facetious remarks and move on to uh, the third and final film. This is also from, we're jumping back to the year 1990. And this is a movie that's not very well known. Uh, and as a matter of fact, was, was uh, very obscure until just about a year ago when I first heard of it, actually, when Criterion did a high def home video release of this movie and while also releasing it as part of their special preview movies of the week uh, leading up to the release of the Criterion channel, their streaming service. I got to watch this movie uh, because I was a early subscriber and I actually wrote a review of it, which is still up on cinemaholics.com. It is Charles Burnett's To Sleep With Anger. Hi, I'm Danny Glover. I've recently had the opportunity to be in a very special motion picture called To Sleep With Anger. It's the first major film written and directed by noted filmmaker Charles Burnett. To Sleep With Anger. It's a film about old friends. Ah! Oh, oh, we haven't seen you in what? what? It must be 30 years or more. I'm telling you, Harry is nothing but evil. Yeah. That's bad luck to touch a fellow with a broom. Oh. Ooh. This boy must be turning over. Take me to the wall. Take me to the wall. Are you a friend here? that I'm taking Sonny and leaving. And just as I say that, who you think is coming up the steps? Harry. <laughs> the other 1990 movie with Donnie Glover, or Donis, I will never forget you for, <laughs> for planting Donnie Glover, with Danny Glover, uh, released within months of Predator 2, which, which Adonis and I just talked about on Game Over, man. And I think it's fair to say this is better. Oh, yeah, by by a long shot. <laughs> no competition there. Yeah, now you hadn't seen this one before, right? I had not. I'd actually never even heard of Charles Burnett until you uh, brought his name to my attention. Uh, and I'm really glad you did because, wow, I, I really enjoyed this movie. Yeah, Charles Burnett, one of the great uh, indie directors working since, I think, the 70s, maybe even the 60s, and uh, and is still alive, so... Uh, has produced a lot of great uh, indies, a lot of which center around the African-American experience. And this is one of them where it's a story of a family living in Los Angeles and they're from the South and they have since moved to LA and uh, they're having sort of, they're just having, you know, regular uh, domestic drama, nothing too, you know, serious or earth shattering to, to maybe the, you know, at a glance, when one day in walks Danny Glover, who is someone from their path who is just sort of drifting through. And 
starts to sort of, whether intentionally or otherwise, bring a lot of their insecurities, a lot of their inner conflicts, this family's inner conflicts, I should say, to the surface. And a lot of things start going down. And uh, and it all stems from just the presence of Danny Glover. And this is a fascinating uh, sort of, you know, flashpoint from within Danny Glover's career. I'm trying to think, and I'm no expert, but has he ever played the villain in any other movie besides this one? Um, He's oh not man. a villainous man, so I don't think so. I, From my knowledge, I cannot remember. Yeah, and uh, and he's he's playing a lot older than he is, at least at the time. It's funny, Adonis and I were talking about off-air. The way he acts in this movie is kind of the way he acts now. So he's clearly yeah. trying to uh, trying to embody like you know s- someone a little bit older than he was at the time. Uh, you know, they put gray in his hair and everything. So right, and and does a damn good job of it, I say. And oh yeah, again, as I said, I think insidious is the key word here because he's very uh, very subtly just sort of exposing what everyone doesn't like about themselves or what everyone right. doesn't like about someone else. And uh, specifically the, uh, the youngest son of this, uh, this uh, patriarch and matriarch uh, played by Richard Brooks, who is an actor who I recognize is one of those faces where you're like, ah, I've seen him before, but you can't quite figure out what it is. And uh, I tried to look him up and apparently he's been in Firefly and law and order. So I think perhaps, that was, I think Firefly is probably what I recognize him from. Probably, yeah. Uh, but regardless, that's kind of the. the I I read a um, a comparison in a review, and I think this is just the perfect comparison to make. Danny Glover in this movie is the snake in the Garden of Eden. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, which I think is very uh, uh, very apt. So Adonis, I'm wondering, having having gone into this at least mostly blind, from what I can tell, mm-hmm. uh, what was it, what was your reaction to it? What did you think of To Sleep with Anger? Um, well, like I said earlier, I really enjoyed the movie. I I did a little bit of research on Charles Burnett when you mentioned him, and I got kind of a sense of his directorial style just by looking up his different movies. Yeah. Um, and so I kind of. Okay, this is going to sound like a weird comparison, but I I mean it on like the most surface level uh, meaning. I kind of expected something similar to Jordan Peele, not in the sense that he would make something. uh, An allegorical horror movie. Right, exactly. Not like that, but something where it would uh, it would um, display the the African-American experience uh, in an indie format. full of um, allegory, not allegory, horror, but allegory for sure. Um, so something similar to that or something like a Spike Lee movie, something like that. Hmm. Um, and I Where don't know. Everything if is just sort of out in the open. Uh, right. And, and no one can take it anymore. I don't know if I got that. There was definitely remnants of that in there for sure. But what I got really surprised me. It felt more like a, like a short play. You know, yeah. like the way it, the way it uh, I'm really surprised. I tried to look it up, but there's 
there's none. I was really surprised that there's no like Broadway adaption of this because this could play out really well on the stage. Just the the beats of the movie and even the the subject matter and uh, the mystery surrounding uh, Don. Uh, oh my God! I almost did it. Danny Glover's character. What have you done, Adonis? <laughs> I've created we'll a never play. be able to say Danny Glover's name again. Oh, I fear the day we meet Danny Glover and we make that mistake. <laughs> hey, Donnie Glover. Who? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. But yeah, oh, but even the mystery hilarious. behind his character, um, whose name escapes me right now. Um, it's a Harry. Harry, thank you. No last um, name, just mysterious. Just Harold. Yeah, Harold. so just the... and And the fact that he does kind of act like the 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 physical representation of this family's like insecurities and hatred and just worst emotions the snake in the grass you know yeah uh, matter of fact the the poster for this movie one of them anyway is really great it's just Danny Glover with holding a bunch of playing cards they have the faces of the family on them and he's grinning devilishly yeah yeah I've seen that cover it's it's a really good one yeah it it's it's really um indicative of what the movie's about you know yeah so yeah um i did enjoy it like i said i it, i got like a sort of a one-off broadway play beat from it uh and that was really refreshing it wasn't what i was expecting um oh i had another point to make but it, i can i lost my train of thought i'm sorry <laughs> because of donnie glover is that right? <laughs> pretty much that derailed me entirely I um know. I was going to say, I remember not, uh, not getting too much into the ending of the film because I don't want to throw too much away right now, but sure. even the way it ended was very, very interesting, very um, unexpected and kind of leaves you like, it leaves you wondering what his intentions were like at the end, because he is a very, uh, insidious character a very um like he does he does play a lot into the the uh the family's insecurities but it, at the end it almost kind of brings them together in a way you know yeah that's a weird thing about this movie is just kind of the enigma around everything to do with this character i think there's a reason he's billed first even though i i, I don't know if this is technically true but he doesn't show up for a while and i'm not sure sh- I would be surprised if he didn't have the most lines in this movie, but Danny Glover really is the reason that this is a story at all without, without having this, you know, like third party metaphorically intervening. uh, I think it would have been a perfectly fine movie, just like a, you know, just sort of a domestic uh, drama with a family trying to, come to terms with who they are and everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really not without this character that it works as well as it does. Uh, the way that he shows up after, I think they say like 30 years of absence and just kind of brings all of the progress that they've been really proud of making uh, kind of brings it crashing to the ground and just tears up everything that they had been working on. And we don't know if, if, uh, if, if it was on purpose or not. And I think it's very, 
very cool that we'd never find out. And so mm-hmm. this is a really nice little slice of the indie world at the time, which was kind of on the verge of a huge explosion. Actually, it was after that because the late 80s is when that really uh, went out. So if you're looking for a really great sort of unconventional independent drama from the early 90s, this is really this is the ticket Uh this is one to seek out. It's it's weird because I thought it was on the Criterion channel for the longest time. As it turns out, it's not. Like it, it expired at some point, which is disappointing. But it yeah. is available uh, via a variety of streaming services. Uh, I think uh, like you know Google Play and YouTube and iTunes and everything. Mm-hmm. So it's out there. It's not completely obscure as it was maybe uh, f- a few years ago, but. I was really glad to discover this movie last year and to rediscover it this year. And I'm glad that I got to expose you to it, Adonis. <laughs> I was going to say, uh, yeah, two things. One, I looked it up and I guess it had a, a home release, like a remastered home media release from Criteria, uh, Criterion uh, yep. on February 26, 2019. No idea why it's gone now. Um not even, I mean, not even a full, like, I mean, a full year, but not even, like, a very long time. Yeah. Uh, and I was looking up, like, reviews for the movie just to see how it did. And it's got a kind of, like, mixed, mixed to to good reception, it looks like. A, a few critics actually gave it, like, a like a two or three out of five. Yeah. Uh, I know it's got like, wasn't a fan. Yeah. And it's got, like, an 88%. Um, and I think honestly, this is one of those movies that does a lot better now than I could see it doing back then. It really seems like, uh, Charles Burnett was really ahead of the game with this one because I, I really enjoy this movie and I see a lot of, uh, inspiration in newer movies from modern filmmakers, uh, taken from, uh, stories like this, um, so yeah, I think it's I think it really is ahead of its time and I would definitely recommend it. Uh it is a little bit of a slow burn. Um so if you're not a fan of like independent dramas uh centered around familial struggles, I mean that is what this movie is. Uh but the added presence of Danny Glover really takes it up to another level. Mm-hmm. Uh so I would definitely recommend this to anyone I can. Yeah, and when Adonis says slow burn, it's literal and figurative. The first thing that happens in this movie is a bowl of fruit on fire. <laughs> that was not intentional. Which is one hell of an image right there. But yes, besides that one kind of abstract shot right there, uh, <laughs> it is it is a very straightforward drama. So your mileage may vary, but I think if this is your thing, then you'll really dig it. And it makes me excited for what are the other movies that have been around for like 30 or 40 years that we just haven't heard of and, the, and that are really great. Right. Uh, that's the joy of exploration, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's and it uh, it's what makes me so excited to get to do this show every week because I'll get to either discover or rediscover something that might be amazing. And I think I got to do it at least twice during this episode, uh, maybe even three times. So, uh, yeah, good good crop of movies. And I think with that, why don't we uh, end off the show? Unless you had anything else to say, Adonis Gonzalez. Um, I had something to say, but it was a joke. And you know what? I thought about it in my head and I was like, ah, probably not. Ah, leaving us hanging, huh? I just, I just didn't think it was very funny. Okay. All right. <laughs> I see how it is. All I'm right, scratching so- it off on my notebook. I'm like, mm. 
with with that salacious tease, Adonis, why don't you tell why don't you tell the listeners where they can find you on the internet? <clears throat> well, of course, uh, you can find me on Twitter at Adogon twenty one. That's A D O G O N two one. I spell it every time because it's my name is weird. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> uh, I tweet things as you do when you're on Twitter. Uh, you can also find me on cinemaholics.com. I co-host Game Over Man with Sam Nolan here, oh, yeah. uh, where we talk about Alien and Predator, as well as Alien versus Predator. Um, we're uh, getting we're into getting there. we're getting there. Yeah, we're getting into the the hard ones. So definitely make sure to listen to that, so you can hear us groan with frustration every single week. So you don't have to, right? Uh, we also do a nice place to visit, which is a little bit more of a palatable. Uh, series with the Twilight Zone. Uh, we just did uh, the third episode of the Twilight Zone, Mr. Dinn on Doomsday, and we'll be doing the next one, the 16mm Shrine, pretty soon. Um, I also write things sometimes. You know, I give my opinion in the written form on movies. Uh, I'm not the most cohesive at it, but you know what? I throw in some smart words every once in a while there. A couple of six-syllable uh, keywords for you. <laughs> I think your writing is very smart. Oh, thank you, thank you. Yes. <laughs> so that's where you can find me yeah very nice i'm also on twitter at noland sam uh otherwise known as no land sam which is i had <laughs> i had someone like read my twitter comment on a podcast the other day and they said no land sam says i'm like oh they don't I think that would be your uh, that's <laughs> <laughs> i think that would be your uh dances with wolves i think name, so if yeah. you got it. Oh my yeah. yes, there is a, a man with no land. Aha! Maybe that's where maybe that's where my name originated. Perhaps. That would be really embarrassing if it was. But that's where I am, and uh, yeah. So and besides that, I'm also on Letterbox, which is also just my name, Sam Nolan. Pretty easy to find. That's where I log everything I write, and it's where I spend most of my time on the internet. And I'm also on the two Patreon exclusive shows that Adonis mentioned. For as low as two dollars a month, you can join us every single week. We really hope you check us out over there. And also this show every single week, extra milestone. And with that. I believe we will sign off from the inside of a bowl of flaming fruit. I'm Sam Noland. From the final stand in a Western town, I'm Adonis Gonzalez. And we'll catch you on the next Extra Milestone. <laughs>